Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Father, you made us to thrive in an atmosphere of grace. Grace is like oxygen for our souls. And we were made to depend on your strength that you give to us freely through your grace. And that makes all of our weaknesses a little less um, relevant. Because when we are weak, the weaknesses of our personality, the weaknesses that we feel physically, the weaknesses we feel emotionally, the struggles that we have in life, when we're sitting in those and you give us grace to endure those things, your power is manifested and made evident in our lives. And so it is your grace that holds us. And I pray that you would extend your grace to us through scripture and through this teaching, through our singing today, and through communion. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We're talking about having a quiet time and developing a quiet time. And we're launching into the new year with this, with the idea that it'd be really cool for us to have this resolution as a church that we are, we each have a quiet time that feels more like delight than duty. A quiet time that actually makes us ready for the day. It makes us, if we start the day angry, it softens us and it replaces that anger with joy. Uh, If we start the day grumpy, which is normally how I start the day before coffee, um, even before we're medicated with caffeine, we have a little bit of vibrancy and aliveness and excitement about life. Those are the types of things that quiet time can do. It can make us more predictably cheerful. I used to say Howard Hendricks um, was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for over 50 years, and he would say, I know you're a Christian, but try not to look like one, because for a long time, Christians were just grumpy people. And a lot of times it's because we had these weak, quiet times or we were gutting through trying to read too much rather than really thinking about Scripture and really setting aside a time that was really delightful in spending time with the Lord. It's not so much how often you get through the Scripture, it's how often Scripture gets through you. So we allow Scripture to inform the way that we treat one another, the way that we act, the way that we feel, all these things. That's why it's important to have this quiet time. Now, quiet time consists of uh, silence and scripture and prayer. And if you're visiting and you're kind of exploring Christianity today, um, it's important when you hear me say that we want quiet time to feel like delight, that might seem a little bit strange because for a lot of people, the last thing they think of when they think of Christianity or reading scripture is delight. That's like the last thing you would think of, especially if you're exploring Christianity from the outside in, you're seeking, and we always want people in this room who are on the journey, who haven't yet made that decision, who are still seeking, so we're really glad you're here if that's where you're at. But that might seem a little bit strange, delight. You're equating this word with 
reading the Bible, this ancient text, what sounds so delightful about that, or praying, particularly praying because we're going to be talking about prayer today. And prayer, the reason why we use words like delight is, Steve Brown said this, had this quote, he said, um, prayer is talking with someone who doesn't think it's a party if you're not there. That's what prayer is. Like the Father actually enjoys us and loves us and delights in us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, he laughs over us with joy. The way that you would look at a toddler running around the room that's your son or daughter and just laugh over them with joy and scoop them up. That's the, that's the posture that God has towards us in prayer. And that's how we go into prayer. Not as an angry dad that's about to discipline us. That's why we use words like delight. So I have in your bulletin, if you, if you look, there's the outline for the things that you should have as part of your quiet time, or what I'm suggesting. And it says, begin in silence, read a psalm. And again, if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, you didn't listen to that message, it might help to go back on the podcast and listen to it. Uh, it'll give you more of a foundation and help you begin to plan out practically what this time will look like. But begin in silence, read a psalm, read through a gospel, a paragraph a day. As you're reading, listen for a word from God. Respond by writing a few sentences in a journal and end in silence. What's the hardest part of that? Anyone give it a shot? What, what do you think is the hardest part of that whole deal? Silence. How many of you have tried it and you feel like silence is a really difficult part of that? Yeah, it is. Hi. Oh my goodness, I just had an ADHD moment, but I just saw someone. I'm really pumped to see him. All right, anyway, so silence is a really, that is the hardest part of this whole deal. Moving into scripture time with silence is difficult. So I want to speak to that just for a couple minutes um, because it is the hardest part. If you like challenging yourself, you might start with seven to 10 minutes. Some people need something really, really difficult to motivate themselves. And so if you were to try seven to 10 minutes of silence, that would be really, really hard and maybe not sustainable. Um, I go around that. That's about how long I start usually in the mornings with silence before scripture. But that's really, really hard. It's taken me like four years to get there. So I guess what I would suggest is start really easy. And I don't think I said this last week, but I guess I would say start with a minute. Just a minute of being quiet, a minute of being silent before you open scripture. Don't do anything else, just sit silently. Now, what do you do when your mind starts to drift and wander? Um, because what happens when you start to get quiet and silent is every thought that you, your mind just starts going berserk with ideas and thoughts and things you forgot to do and to-do list items and it's just insane. The first thing to do is just expect that to happen. Expect that when you create space just to sit quietly and be silent, your mind is not going to like mystically get crystal clear and quiet and you're always going to have thoughts that run through there. And so I Another thing that you can do is have a, just very practically speaking, what I do is have a, a notebook next to you. So if something comes up that, oh man, I totally forgot to do that yesterday, I need to do that today. If you don't write it down and get it out of your head, it's going to be echoing inside of your brain for the next 10 minutes. There's no way you cannot think about it. <clears throat> so have a notebook next to you, write these things down, 
And if you write them down, it kind of releases it and gets it out of your thinking. Another thing that you can do is focus on something. I feel like I need to say, because um, I'm going to say you can focus on your breath and that might freak some people out. I'm not talking about like Eastern meditation silence. Like Eastern meditation silence is for the purpose of emptiness. Christian silence is for the purpose of fullness. Eastern meditative silence is all about emptying your mind so that there's just zero thoughts. It's just like a beautiful, calm lake. I don't know what good that does. Christian silence is for the sake of being more available to God, a fuller sense of God in your life. So you might think about a verse. Maybe your silence is, I'm thinking about a verse. Like right now I keep saying my phrase for this year in Psalm 23 is he leads me beside still waters. So a lot of times my silence of the morning is just saying that over and over in my head. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me beside still waters. And just thinking about that. So there's a couple practical ideas because I know silence is an issue for a lot of you. A lot of you have given me feedback about that and it's just difficult. So don't overthink it. Don't make it too difficult. Um, even if you're just sitting there and your mind's going crazy for 60 seconds and you're not, you're not physically doing anything, that still counts. You're still doing well. Okay? So we're going to go into the next piece of this, and this is... Well, I want to see if you, if you notice something. I'm going to read through it again. This is the outline. Begin in silence. Read a psalm. Read through a gospel, a paragraph a day. As you're reading, listen for a word from God. Respond by writing a few sentences in a journal. End in silence. What's missing? Anybody notice this last week? I'm surprised nobody came up to me and said, yeah, prayer. Where's prayer in this? The idea is that this whole thing actually becomes a prayer. But you should also have spaces where you are literally focused on praying in the quiet time. And the reason why it's not in the outline is because it will happen throughout your quiet time. It'll happen in different places. In fact, when you're reading a psalm, sometimes he puts words to things that you're feeling better than you can, and you're reading it, and as you're reading it, it becomes your prayer. Or maybe in silence, something pops up that you want to talk to God about after the minute's over, and that becomes a time for you to pray. Or you're reading through the gospel, and something is amazing about Jesus that you've never thought about before. And it causes you to want to pray about something in your life, a way that you want to imitate him as you see him going about interacting with people. Or when you're journaling, maybe you're journaling a prayer. Maybe it's easier for you, rather than talking out loud or praying in your head, to write it out loud in a journal. Maybe your journal is the prayer time. So the point is, you're going to be praying throughout this process. And the process itself will become a type of prayer. So that's why it's not like officially listed. Um, there's one way of praying that's actually not helpful. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a, a, a habitual way of praying that we sometimes get into that it would probably be better if you didn't even pray. It's the one thing that I would say avoid doing this in your prayer life. And so we're going to spend the whole time talking about that because it's such a part of, for some reason, the American, you know, our church, we pray like this a lot. And so I figured it was worth spending an entire teaching on this. 
Next week, I'm going to talk about what should it actually look like. This week is don't do this. Next week is do this in prayer. All right? So here's what it is. It's making demands of God in prayer. You know, we often pray where we're demanding outcomes from God. And it's usually because we're trying to avoid some type of suffering in our lives. A lot of the ways that we pray is fix this, make this better, don't let this happen. And we kind of hold God hostage, like if you make, if this happens, I'm not, I'm, we're done, I'm not talking to you, I'm not going to go to church for a month. And it's, it's just the wrong spirit and the wrong posture, and it's actually a very dangerous way to pray because it's saying that I know what's best for me better than you know what's best for me. That's a, that's a really dangerous way to, to pray. Danger might be a little bit of a strong word, but it's not a helpful way to pray. Making demands of God. So let's do this. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. I think Paul gives us a pretty good model of what it looks like when you're facing suffering, how to pray about it, how to talk with God about it. It's in your notes if you want to follow along in the bulletin or you can turn there in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. And I'm just going to warn you as we go into this, there's going to be a little bit of a bunny trail that I, I'm going to take just because it's interesting. And it's helpful to know, it explains something that Paul says in the first verse that it's just helpful to know. So just be warned, there's going to be a little bit of a bunny trail, follow me on it, then we'll get back on track. Let's start with verse 7. So to keep me from being, becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... Now, what you're going to see is God's going to allow suffering in Paul's life because he got to see something really amazing spiritually. And so this thing that he saw that was amazing, um, he could become really cocky and really arrogant. It could be like a mic drop for any theological debate. And there were people that were giving, these people called super apostles that were giving Paul a really hard time and telling people, don't listen to him, listen to us, we know better. And Paul could have used this as a mic drop, say, yeah, well, guess what happened to me? And God, in order to keep Paul from getting conceited about this experience that he had that nobody else on earth had, he allowed some suffering in his life so that he wouldn't get cocky. It's pretty interesting. And the bunny trail that I want to take is to talk about what is this that he's talking about, the surpassing greatness of the revelations. That's kind of a mysterious phrase. What does he mean by that? Well, we have to go back to 2 Corinthians 12 too, just before this passage. And he tells us, he says, I know a man in Christ. He's talking in third person. He's the reason he's doing that, but he's talking about himself. So he's saying, I know a man in Christ. It's actually, we know it's you, Paul. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. That's interesting. Paul was caught up to this third heaven. What does that mean? So in Hebrew understanding, and this is the correct understanding, there are three heavens. The first heaven is like the air you breathe, the oxygen. It's our atmosphere. You go up in a plane and you're going through clouds and stuff. This is the part of our atmosphere. The air, the oxygen in this room, that's the first heaven in their understanding. 
The second heaven is outer space. It's going out, it's, it's looking up at the stars when the, when the veil is removed from, the, from outer space, when night comes and the clouds move away and you can see the moon and the stars. It's, it's the sun, it's the galaxies. That's the second heaven. It'd been cool if Paul would've been caught up in that. Like that would've been good enough. Like all of a sudden I'm, I'm floating in outer space. That's amazing. He was caught up into the third heaven. In Hebrew understanding, the third heaven is what we think of as heaven. It's where God lives. It's where Jesus is right now. So if you have friends who are in the faith and who have passed and died, they are with Jesus right now in this third heaven. And Paul's saying, that's where I went. That's crazy. This is also, another word for this is paradise. If you remember Jesus on the cross, one of the one of the thieves was kind of mocking him, and another thief said, you need to stop, man. This guy didn't do anything. He's innocent. And Jesus looked at him. You remember what he said? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, that guy got in by the skin of his teeth. But he was going to be with Jesus in paradise. Jesus was talking about this third heaven. Another interesting thing is in Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he says, our Father who art in heaven. It's so weird that they use a singular heaven there because the the actual greek it's a it's um it's plural it's the heavens i don't know why we don't translate it that way but the actually what jesus is saying when you pray pray our father who art in the heavens which means god is everywhere in him we live and move and have our being he's in the first second and third heaven the father is everywhere so the third heaven is paul being caught up into where Jesus is and where saints are who have gone to be with the Lord. And there's all sorts of things happening there. Somehow Paul gets caught up into this place. And it's a little bit of a mystery to him too. Uh, He continues, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Again, he's saying it. Seriously, I was there. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He's like, I have no idea. I don't know if like it was a vision. I don't know if like my body, literally I'm standing in heaven. It was a little overwhelming. There was a lot going on. I don't know how I got there. I don't know how this happened. All I know is I was all of a sudden in heaven. That's wild. Most people don't get to do that. And so in order to you know, make Paul to keep him from getting uh, too heavenly minded that he's, he's actually arrogant and cocky with people because he got extra revelation. God allows this suffering. And then verse four, and he heard, he heard things that cannot be told. So when he's in heaven, he's hearing some inside baseball, which man may not utter. So he heard some things that he wasn't allowed telling us, essentially is what he's saying there. It's kind of like in Revelation, if you guys like the book of Revelation, which is just this vision of kind of history and end time stuff that's going to happen. Um, John gets this revelation while he's on this island, and in Revelation 10.4, he gets, he gets a little bit, bit more insight about something. He's about to write it down on the scroll, and God says, that's off the record. You're not allowed telling people about that one. Interesting. Like, why does God reveal certain things to certain people and they're not allowed telling anybody, especially authors of Scripture? Who knows? We have no idea what Paul heard. We have no idea what Paul saw. We just know that it was pretty amazing and it could make you pretty 
arrogant spiritually if you got to see it too. That's what Paul means by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So, end of bunny trail. Let's go back to verse seven. So to keep me from being conceited, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to, har- to harass me, to keep me from being, becoming conceited. So, Paul gets a thorn in the flesh. He gets a messenger from Satan. Now, there's a lot of people that are very confident that they know exactly what that means. I mean, there's, there's, people have written books about this. I know exactly what that thorn in the flesh is. You do not know. Nobody knows for sure what that is. We have some ideas. There's probably some better guesses than others. But nobody really knows what this thorn in the flesh he's talking about is. Some messenger from Satan. Satan allows some type of suffering in Paul's life, and we don't know what it is. The reason we don't know exactly what it is is because God doesn't need us to know. He just needs us to know that somehow Paul is suffering. And we suffer too sometimes. And so Paul's going to give us an example of how to talk about this type of suffering that he's facing. And that's what's instructive for us. So let's keep going. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Do you know anybody else in the Bible that pleaded three times about suffering that he was hoping to, that he was asking God to remove from his cup? Anybody else go back three times? Jesus went three times back into the garden. We'll talk about that in a minute. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. That's a legitimate way to pray about suffering. You can plead with God to remove it. It's okay to ask God to to, to have mercy on you. It's okay to ask God if there's another way. Is there another way? If there's a lesson you're trying to teach me, is there another way that I can receive this other than this? I don't want this. That's okay, we're allowed praying. Last night, <clears throat> I got up in the middle of the night and I was really nauseous. And just, you know, we're just coming off COVID. And I felt like I was getting the flu. And I almost like, I almost called you at three in the morning. <laughs> like, you're gonna have to preach tomorrow. But I was like, God, that, that'd be so hard. I would not wanna get a call at three in the morning saying I have to preach. It just doesn't feel like that'd be loving for Alex. And it's just not like, I don't, I wanna be there. I miss everybody. I love seeing everyone on Sunday mornings. Is there any way, please, I feel like I'm getting the flu. I feel like I'm going to puke. Please take this from me. I do not want to get sick, especially just coming off of this other thing. I don't want to get the flu. Um, and then I was able to go back to bed, and apparently God, God helped me out, and he took care of it. It's good. You can do that. You can ask him to remove suffering. But let's keep, let's keep, let's keep going. Even Jesus, like we said, did this in Gethsemane. He said, if there's any other way than me dying on a cross and me being separated from your loving presence in my life, Father, if there's any other way, let me know. I'd be happy to do it a different way. A different way. But then he gets to, but not my will, but yours be done. And that's the, that's the point we gotta get to eventually in our prayers. We can plead that he removes us from suffering We can plead that he guards us from suffering, but we eventually have to get to, but I trust you. And we get out of bounds when we begin to demand certain outcomes. 
Because God might have something in mind that he wants to do, he wants to accomplish in you, he wants to grow in you through this type of suffering, which apparently he did with Paul. So let's keep going. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. So God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. Human beings were meant to live by the power that we receive from God through his grace. Grace is extending stuff to you that you don't deserve. Grace is empowering you to handle life as it shows up at your doorstep. Because there will come a time in your life that you have to face something that you can't in your own strength, you can't in your own power. We were made to be dependent creatures. And grace enables us, empowers us through any of the type of suffering that we might face. Um, God was saying to Paul, I'm not going to remove the suffering, but I'm going to enable you to handle it. I'm not going to make your life easier, I'm going to make you stronger. You know what grace does in the midst of suffering? It makes us into resilient disciples. We know very little about resilience. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, we just, we live in Disneyland, we live in a bubble of time and a bubble of place that we don't really, really face a lot of suffering. And so we sometimes don't feel like we have this need for grace, and so we get a little bit soft. We, we're not resilient. God wants us to be resilient disciples. And we, we can bounce back quickly, and if we die, we're okay with that too because we get to be with Jesus. I mean, that's ultimately the place where God is leading us in our spiritual growth. Apart from Jesus, I'm a very fragile person. Some of you are really strong. Some of you are really you know, tough-minded, mentally tough, and that's a beautiful thing. I'm more fragile. And one of the biggest things that God has done for me, one of the biggest evidences of God in my life is now I can pray, God, no matter what happens, I trust you'll be with me. I trust you'll see me through it. I trust you'll extend your grace to me so that I'm not gonna be overcome or overwhelmed by it. And it's changed the way that I pray because I used to demand outcomes. I used to demand that God protect me from any type of suffering. I've used this uh, example before um, because it was such a life-changing moment for me. But several years ago, I went to India. And I was going to this place in India where there's a lot of, it, it was dangerous to be a Christian. And there's persecution, people were killed for their faith. There's just a, it's a lot of bad stuff happens when you're a Christian in this area, and they face it regularly. And so I'm, I'm finally talked in with some friends to go to Rajasthan in this little section where actually Muslims and, and Christians work together. They kind of protect each other and hide each other. We had a group of Muslims that were hiding us in one of their buildings um, because the, the Hindu oppression is so strong that Christians and Muslims kind of look out for each other. So we were, we were going to this place, and I was praying before we went there, God, you cannot let anything happen to me. Like, I've got two daughters, I've got a wife, I do not, nothing can happen to me. I'll be so mad <laughs> if something happens to me. You better not do that, because you say you're loving, and you say you're kind, and I'm going to be really mad. That's how I was praying. I was praying, making demands of God I was naming, I mean, we do this, I was naming the promises, I was claiming the verses, I was doing all of it. You better not let this happen, God. And then I went to India, and uh, we were, 
I was supposed to go preach at this mountain church just one day. It's going to sound really dramatic, and it kind of was. It's one of the more dramatic moments of my life. I was supposed to preach at this mountain church. It was a Sunday morning. We were waiting for the people to pick us up at the airport. I was with my buddies. We were all praying. They were praying with me about this message I was going to give. And the guy comes and picks us up, and he, he says, I just, want to, I just want to let you know ahead of time, there was some persecution in this area where you're going to be preaching. There was a guy preaching, a couple guys preaching in some of these mountain churches, and they were dragged out of the service and beat, and, and they're not doing great. He showed me pictures of them in the hospital. And he's like, so, just, you know, we'd understand if you back out. And I was like, let's go. No, let's go. Let's do it. I'm fine. That's not like me. <laughs> That's not me. Apart from God's grace, there's no way I step into that church and preach. And you're like, my buddies are waiting for people to come in the back. And it's like, this is insane. I can't believe this stuff actually happens here today, right now. That's why I say we kind of live in Disneyland because this stuff is still happening to my friends over there. I was, I'm fragile and timid and scared and not brave and not courageous. I'm none of those things apart from God. But Paul told Timothy, God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity. He's given you a spirit of power and love and of self-discipline, self-control. And in that moment, when I needed God's grace, when I needed God's help, he gave it to me. I didn't have it before that moment. After that moment, I went and cried in a closet for three hours like, wow, that could have been it. But in that moment, he gave me the grace sufficient to withstand the type of suffering and fear that he knew I was going to be facing. I wasn't afraid at all. That's what the Spirit does. That's what grace will do for you. You step into a situation by faith. You step into suffering by faith, knowing that he'll carry you. And his grace was sufficient. It's always been, and it always will be. God wants to make us into resilient disciples to be able to handle suffering, and he knows you can't do it on your own. And only then will we be able to pray without demands. And it comes down to the question that every Christian has to answer, and that is, do you trust God? I mean, do you really trust him? Do you trust that he's going to come through for you? And that's the question we're always having to answer. And sometimes the answer, we feel like, no, honestly, no, I don't. I'm having a hard time right now. Then tell him that. Pray that. You're allowed praying that. You're allowed saying that. But demanding that God protects us from all types of suffering actually makes us crazy. It, fear, it, it, it feeds all of our neuroses. Um, when you try to set up your life so that you never experience any suffering, you get crazy. Uh, M. Scott Peck says it much better. He says, the attempt to avoid legitimate suffering lies at the root of all emotional illness. You realize that? When you try to avoid suffering... You're, in, you're inviting emotional illness into your life because it's impossible to avoid real suffering. If you live long enough, some of, some of us experience it less than others, but if you live long enough, you'll face it. So what does Paul end it here? He says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Paul says, bring on the suffering. Bring it on. I'm no longer trying to, it's, I'm not just trying to avoid it. I've made friends with it. I've made friends with suffering. I am content with any type of suffering that comes my way. Because when I am weak, then I am strong in Christ. The one area where I am most tempted, most consistently, to make demands of God in prayer is the, the nightmare of losing a loved one, someone close to me. Like that's everything else I've kind of, okay, I don't need to demand this. I'm going to ask you to remove this, but I'm not demanding it. Um, but when it comes to losing a loved one, I get, this is where I get a little bit close to, God, don't let that happen. <laughs> Do not let that happen. Uh, we had a, and I, I'm learning from a friend right now, um, Kara and I and Alex, uh, we have uh, two friends live in Archbold. They've been here several times, Ron and Kathy King. They, they made our sign for us. Um, they, they fixed our trailer. They put the, the sign on the side of the trailer. They're amazing people. They've taken us out to lunch. Um, they're just incredible. Been here several times. And so it's like a few months ago, Ron actually had this weird virus that came out. On, he's a healthy dude, weird virus that came out of nowhere, and it paralyzed him. And he's like a vibrant, motorcycle-riding, healthy guy and just came out of nowhere. Couldn't walk, bedridden, lost a ton of weight, was just not doing good. And then a few weeks ago, he starts, he starts getting better, and he's able to walk, and then he gets this, him, his wife and gets this news that she has stage four cancer. I mean, this is, they're so alive and they're such amazing servants of God. They're always inviting people over to their house to ride four-wheelers and stay. And like, they set this thing up where they're taking care of pastors and their spouses and they just have such a heart for people. They're so loving and they're so kind. And Ron is getting over this paralysis and, and Kathy gets stage four cancer. And for a while, he's making demands of God. And then he writes this. You gotta read, this is amazing. I just publicly wanna thank Pastor Charles Zimmerman for uniting Kathy and I in marriage in 1975. I feel like I'm one of the blessed, most blessed men in the world to have been able to spend my life with this amazing woman. We've had one of the most blessed marriages I could have ever asked for. Kathy and I have always tried to outserve each other in our marriage. Looking back, I can humbly admit that she has outserved me, as many of you have witnessed. We've had disagreements in our marriage, but we have never had harsh words towards each other. We've never shouted at each other. We, we have never fought violently, and we never publicly embarrassed our spouse. I have often said that I am so privileged to have lived with the daughter of the Most High King. Two weeks ago, she's still alive at this time, two weeks ago, I verbally released my wife, the daughter of the king, back to him and thanked him to have spent 46 years together in marriage. What a privileged man I am. I love you, honey, and I will see you soon. Love your husband. And she was still alive at the time. So I, she, she passed... Um, a week or two ago, they're having a service for her today at the church. 
kind of wish I could be there. Um, but God is doing incredible things through that situation. They're experiencing a little revival around this. They would have people in their house, and Kathy was all about, don't worry about me. I want Jesus to be glorified in this. And I'm excited to see him. I'm excited to be with him. I'm going to miss you guys, but I want him to be glorified in this. So I'm not making demands of him is what she's essentially saying. And Ron was saying, I release all of my demands, all of the ways that I want to avoid suffering. I release that into your hands. I trust you, God. Thank you for the privilege of being married to this amazing woman for 46 years. That's instructive. That's how we can learn to pray. And when you release and you stop making demands of God in prayer, the, things that he, the ways that he's carrying Ron through this is miraculous. There's, there's no way he could handle it as well as he's handling it if God wasn't providing the grace necessary. And Jesus is being glorified, and people are coming to Christ because of Kathy's resilience and toughness and heart through all of this, her ability to release demands. They're amazing. So I think that's what I want to invite us to do. You know, we're not, most of life is not, we're releasing those big types of demands, but we're releasing smaller demands. So just this week, as you're practicing your quiet time, begin to notice where you're making demands of God. Don't let this happen. Save me from this. I don't want to deal with this. Anything but this. Just notice when you start making demands of God and then practice just saying, I would prefer that didn't happen. I would prefer you remove me from this suffering. But not my will but yours, and I trust you. I trust you. Next week, for your quiet time, we're gonna talk specifically about, okay, how can you pray? What should you be praying about? What should you be talking with God about uh, as you practice this thing called quiet time early in the morning? We'll get back into it. All right, let's, um, Alex is gonna come up here and lead us in communion, but let me just shut it down with a prayer here. Well, Father, we depend on you even to give us the strength to pray that way. <laughs> we need you to extend grace to us so that we don't make demands of you, so that we're not hyper fearful or paranoid of facing suffering, so that we're able to even like Paul, embrace and befriend suffering, knowing that when we suffer, you'll be near us and you'll help us. You'll extend grace to us so that we become the type of people that can handle whatever life throws at us. We're competent for the moment, whatever the moment looks like. It's only possible with you because we all have weaknesses we all have something that would get to us if it would happen to us or to someone that we love. We can't avoid that. We live in a world of unknowns. And the only way to be sane, the only way to maintain joy and peace is a deeper dependence on you that you'll get us through anything. Help us get there in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.